On Fridays, we have about 30 to 35 young people who come to our Friday night youth group. And at the end of last term, they had a, like a jolly, a social. They went 10-pin bowling here. And so I took our youngest daughter, Emma, and I dropped her off at this bus stop you can see on the left. And as I parked up at the bus stop, I did notice that there was a police car that had pulled in, sort of blocking me in, with its lights flashing. And I thought, well, I mean, obviously, they I don't know, the police are like chasing a thief down the high street, or, you know, it's going to be like a chase or something. And so they parked in a kind of haphazard, random way, blocking me in to get out and pursue the criminal on foot, I thought. Um, but then what actually happened was that the police officer says, is this your vehicle, sir? And I said, uh, sorry, are you talking to me? <laughs> uh, yeah, yes, it is. And of course, then the dawning realization comes. I am being pulled over by the police at exactly the time when all the Beacon youth are all arriving for the jolly 10-pin bowling and all the Beacon church youth parents are all going to rock up and I'm being in trouble with the police. And so I kind of pull my hat down, I pull my collar up. I think, oh no, they're going to recognize me because I'm with Emma. They'll recognize Emma, they'll realize. So I try and get rid of her. Go, off you go, off you go. Oh, bye, see you later. Try and get rid of her. But she doesn't leave. She sort of lingers a bit, kind of waiting, thinking, you know, daddy's in trouble with the police. It's, you know, this looks a bit concerning. And I was like, oh, no, 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 it's all fine. You know, off you go. It's just, we're just chatting with the police. It's just all normal. Off you go, go on. And so I, I get rid of Emma. And then um, the police officer says, um, sir, how long have you been driving? I said, well, uh, it's hard to say. Um, maybe, let's have a think, maybe, maybe 10 minutes? <laughs> but, uh, I mean, Blackwater to Camberley, what do you reckon, 10 minutes? She said, no, no, sir, no, sir. I'm asking, how long is it, sir, since you took your driving test? Oh, I see what you mean. Yeah, I see what you mean. Well, I can tell you it was in my lower sixth form year at school, so I know I did my A-levels in 1987, so that means it would have been 1986, I suppose. So what's our sum? 2022, December 2022, 2022 minus 1,986, what is that sum? So let's just think, that's 14 plus 22, 36, 30, I have been driving for 36 years. He said, sir, are you aware do you realize, sir, why I pulled you over? I said, no, I'd be really interested to know. She said, well, at the previous junction, sir, outside the Royal Military Academy Sandhurst, are you aware, sir, that you reversed into the direction of the oncoming traffic? No, I didn't know that. That's really interesting. She said, um, sir, do you ever get confused <laughs> while driving? I said, yeah, I'm often confused while driving. In fact, my wife's saying all the time that I get confused. Confused by simple instructions, confused by basic household tasks. She often says, I look confused, I am confused. She's always saying that to me. Yeah, I, I often get confused. And then she took her handheld device, she ran my number plate through her system, and then eventually she said farewell, and she let me go with some words which she said were helpful advice for elderly drivers. <laughs> And as I drove away, I must confess, I had two wildly conflicting emotions. On the one hand, I was concerned by how many Beacon Church youth 
and Beacon Church parents had seen me being pulled over by the police. I thought that was probably a bad thing. But on the other hand, I was really quite excited to think back to that day. That day in 1986 when I took my driving test because I distinctly remember that morning telling my driving instructor that I had just become a Christian and that I had decided to follow Jesus. I was so excited to tell him all about it. And why was it? Why was it that I thought that Jesus was such a big deal? Well, the Bible claims that there really is a loving God who has made you and me in the hope of having a wonderful relationship with us in this life and in the next. And the Bible says that the way into this relationship is by trusting this person, Jesus of Nazareth. Okay, so that's the claim. But is it true? Well, in this first century document, we get an insight into what people thought about Jesus at the time. This is before Jesus' death and resurrection. In the first few months of Jesus' spectacular teaching and healing career, Jesus had made a huge impact. And modern historians have reached a consensus about the real historical Jesus. And the consensus is that Jesus of Nazareth was a traveling storyteller, an exorcist and wonder worker who arrived on the scene with an unprecedented sense of divine mission. And Jesus was making some outrageous claims about his own importance. Jesus, of course, a massive stir. People were trying to get at the truth. People were trying to work out, you know, who is he? What's going on? Who is this bloke? And so Jesus starts the conversation by asking, who do the crowd say that I am? As Luke reports it once, when Jesus was praying in private and his disciples were with him, he asked them, who do the crowd say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. And still others that one of the prophets of long ago has come back to life. But what about you? He asked. Who do you say I am? Peter answered, God's Messiah. Jesus strictly warned them not to tell this to anyone. And he said, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and he must be killed. And on the third day, be raised to life. So do you notice that Jesus starts the conversation with them? That he doesn't wait for you and me to begin searching? Personally, I'm so grateful for that. Because I wasn't looking for God, wasn't looking for Jesus, uh, I wasn't on a spiritual search, I didn't go to church, I was perfectly happy as I was, but somebody asked me. Someone raised the subject with me, just like Jesus is raising the subject here. And so at some point in your life, the question comes. And this morning, the question comes to you. Who do you think Jesus is? And the next verse gives us a unique insight into what people thought at the time. 
So who is Jesus? Well, firstly, some say John the Baptist. Well, who was John the Baptist? Well, like Jesus, John the Baptist was an outdoor preacher. He'd been very well known. He'd been a bit of a thorn in the side of the establishment. John had recently been executed, but John the Baptist's ministry had been unforgettable. And the similarities between John the Baptist and Jesus were striking because, like Jesus, John preached about a judgment day to come. John said, one day, everyone who's ever lived will stand before a holy God. You need to get ready for that day. And Jesus said the same thing. So he said, yeah, this um, Jesus spoke. Sounds a bit like John the Baptist, don't you think? Next, verse 19, others said, Elijah. Okay, well, who was Elijah? Well, Elijah had worked miracles. Elijah did major miracles. I mean, these are jaw-dropping events which made people say, oh, my goodness, uh, God's here. That's amazing. What power, what authority. And when Jesus turned up in your town, he got the same kind of response from people, yeah? Elijah had lived hundreds of years previously. He'd been a bit of a national hero. And Elijah, he positively sought confrontation with the top brass of his day and his speciality with these sort of showdown miracles. And these were stupendous miracles, nature miracles, healings. Elijah's boldness was breathtaking. Elijah just seemed to live in the supernatural realm. And when Jesus came to your town, people said, this Jesus is like Elijah. It's like having Elijah living with us now today. And Jesus' miracles were astonishing. Like Elijah, Jesus also deliberately did these sort of showdown, kind of point-proving miracles. So one time, for example, when Jesus was surrounded by the religious leaders of his day, he said, right, listen up, to prove to you lot that I have the authority to forgive sins, watch this speaks to a paralyzed man and says, get up and walk. The bloke gets up, starts walking around. Everybody goes, whoa, what on earth is this all about? This is phenomenal. People say, Jesus, he's like Elijah. This is amazing. Still others, verse 19, that one of the prophets of long ago has come back to life. Okay, Jesus says, verse 20. So much for public opinion. How about you? Who do you say that I am? And I wonder. I wonder what your answer is. Who do you think Jesus is? Peter's answer, verse 20, is God's Messiah. Now, this was a colossal thing for Peter to say because the Jewish people had been waiting for the Messiah for hundreds of years. There had been 322 Old Testament predictions or prophecies about the Messiah. All of these had all been written down at least 400 years before Jesus had even been born. And now Jesus was fulfilling every single one of these prophecies. In the four accounts that we have of Jesus' life which are named after their authors, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. In all four documents, we see Jesus claiming both directly and indirectly to be God. But when I was a teenager, I didn't go to church. I didn't have any friends who went to church. I never heard Jesus' claims. 
For much of my life, I mistakenly thought that following Jesus, probably, probably following Jesus is probably going to be about being more moral, about being more religious. I think probably following Jesus, if I know anything about it, it's probably going to be about like things like minding your language, yeah? Maybe I could just tell you a funny story on this point. Um, I have a friend who bought the leader of his church. This is the pastor of his church. He buys him a, a birthday present, and it's a ticket for a very high-profile football match. So the pastor arrives with his ticket at the ground. It's like a massive derby match between two rival teams. He goes to his seat, and he's right in the war zone between the two sets of rival fans. So he's got thousands of blokes over here hurling all this abuse over towards him. And then all these other blokes on the home team hurling all this. And so the pastor's there, like, right in the middle with all the stewards in their bibs. But he can't join in the swearing. You know, he's a pastor of a church. He can't swear at the opposition fans. He just sort of sits on his hands. He tries to watch the game. But the thing is, for the pastor, his team are losing. They go 1-0 down. They go 2-0 down. And eventually, in the second half, they go 3-0 down. At this point, most of the home fans leave the stadium. They walk out. And then there's just like a handful of the home supporters left, and they look pretty dejected. And then in the 89th minute, the pastor's patience finally cracks. And he stands up. All the other home fans are sitting down. All the away fans are giving it large. You know, the whole second half. They're like, come on. You know, they're 3-0 up. They're not even watching the game. They're 3-0 up. They don't even care. They're giving it all this abuse at the home fans. Pastor's had enough. Stands up, faces these 2,000 blokes and says, on the way home, on the way home, I hope all of you get stuck in traffic. And all the away fans are like, what? What sort of abuse is that? That's the worst abuse I've ever heard. On the way home, I hope you get stuck in traffic. That's pathetic abuse. But you see, because he was a Christian, the pastor couldn't wish that anything really bad would happen to them. So he had to wish that something mildly annoying would happen to them. <laughs> and if we still think that really following Jesus is probably going to be about minding your language about trying to be a good person. We've not yet heard this. We've not yet heard what Jesus is claiming. Jesus was claiming to be God's unique Messiah. And so Peter's saying, you're the one. You're the one that the whole of the Old Testament and the prophets wrote about. You're him, aren't you? Now, I don't know what you think, but for me, for any human being to actually worship another human being, that's a pretty big call. Peter says to a carpenter, in Greek, you are the Christ of God, or in Hebrew, you're the Messiah, the anointed one, the Savior that God has sent into the world. What on earth caused Peter to say such a thing. Well, Peter had been there on the many occasions when Jesus had healed all the sick in an entire region. Jesus healed all kinds of diseases. Time and again, Peter had seen people arrive sick and go away well. For example, one time, a leper comes to Jesus and says, Jesus, if you're willing, you can make me clean. And Jesus says, yeah, I'm willing. Be clean. That was it. He was healed. 
Lepers healed. Peter was there. He saw this sort of stuff happen. The leprosy disappears. Peter had heard from Jesus the most beautiful moral teaching that the world had ever heard. Peter saw Jesus perform nature miracles. He even saw Jesus raise people from the dead. Peter watched dead people come back to life when Jesus laid his hands upon them. So Peter says, you're him. You're the Christ of God. This is a climactic moment. How does Jesus respond? I mean, it's an amazing reaction. He says, great, now you've finally understood who I am. Time for me to drop the bombshell. Listen up, guys. I'm going to die soon. Yeah, I'm going to Jerusalem. I'm going to get arrested. Jesus says, I must be killed. Talking about himself. In verse 22, Jesus says, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and he must be killed, and on the third day be raised to life. What an odd thing to say. Why didn't he say, you know, it's pretty dangerous in Jerusalem, you know, you never know what's going to happen. Hey, I might be killed. No. He says, I must be killed. It's necessary. I mean, who says that? Who says that? I can think of at least one other person who said that. This is the last known photo of Bill Deacon. Bill Deacon was a 50-year-old Scottish Coast Guard helicopter winchman on the rescue team. You can see him there at the end of the line. And he's in the harness, strapped himself in. There's space or scope. There's one other harness. The weight ratios are such they can take two. So the winchman, Bill Deacon, plus one other. Now, on the left, you can see the green lily. This photograph was taken in November 1997 off the Shetland Islands. The green lily had been told by the Coast Guard, there's a Force 11 gale, don't leave port, don't leave harbour, but they decided to put to sea anyway. There are 15 crew on the green lily. And Bill Deacon has been winching them off one by one. All this time, the boat is being swept by this gale towards the rocks, which are very, very close. And as he comes down, Bill Deacon, he's got two crew remaining. 13 of the 15 crew are safe. As he lands on the deck, on this occasion, there's two sailors remaining. But the boat is so close to the rocks. The tilt of the ship, they they put one anchor down. It's much more severe than what you can see in this picture by this stage. It's very difficult to stand on the deck. Plus, when the helicopter comes in, the line is getting entangled with the mast of the green lily. And the weather conditions are getting so bad, Bill Deacon realizes this is it. There isn't going to be another trip. There's three men standing on the deck. There's space for two on the winch. Bill Deacon said, I must be killed. Got out of the harness, strapped in the two remaining sailors, waved them off as they went up into the helicopter. Moments later, a wave comes, sweeps Bill Deacon over the edge of the boat. And his body, his dead body, was found the following day. Storm had passed. This is what was left of the Green Lily. Do you know, it was only six minutes after the last two sailors were winched to safety that the Green Lily hit the rocks. 
All the crew were saved. It was a wonderful rescue. Because Bill Deacon said, to complete the rescue, I must be killed. I wonder if the band would like to come and join me. As they come, strikes me that I've done something a bit like this. At the inquest, they discovered that the green lily had a slight financial advantage. The crew would get a little bit of money if they were to set to sea on that day. And if they had reached their destination, there would have been a small advantage for them financially. They thought it was worth taking their chances. They thought it was worth it. So they set, set sail. It was selfishness. That's what the coroner said. That's what the inquest said. You, you guys were selfish. Yes, you're safe, but you've been selfish. You know, I've been selfish in life. There are times when I knew what the right thing to do was. And I thought, well, if there is a God, I don't know if there is, if there is a God, probably you'll forgive me. Probably it'll be all right. I mean, I'm a reasonably good person. Probably you'll look on me and think, yeah, you know, he was all right. That's okay if God's standard, if heaven is, yeah, all right. What if God is holy? What if God is sinless? What if heaven is a perfect place? If heaven is a perfect place, I can't go there. I would pollute a perfect heaven. So if I was ever going to be in heaven forever, I would probably need a perfect person to come from heaven and cover over all of my sins and swap with me. I'd need that perfect person to take the penalty and the punishment and the consequences for my sins so that God's justice could be served. And then I'd need to get into this perfect person and be winched to safety. And folks, that is exactly what the Bible says Jesus did when he died on the cross. That God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him we could become the righteousness of God. Another translation says that God took the sinless Christ, Jesus never did anything wrong, and poured into him our sins. Then in exchange, how amazing is this? He poured his goodness into us. Christ had no sin, the Bible says, but God made Jesus to become sin so that we could be right with God. That's the exchange, that's the swap. He takes my punishment. He takes the penalty for my sin. I receive his righteousness. I receive his holiness. I get to go to heaven because I've been good enough. No, I've not been good enough, but because Jesus is good enough. He's the only rescuer. You want to go to a perfect heaven? You need someone who's absolutely pure, absolutely holy, who's never sinned even once in their whole life. He's coming down out of the sky. He's coming down out of the helicopter on the rescue. You can stand there on the deck and say, Do you know what, thanks very much, Bill. I'll take my chances. Thanks for the helicopter. Thanks for the lights. Thanks for the line. All very dramatic. I'll take my chances. Or you can embrace that man who's dying in your place. Climb into that harness and be winched to safety. You can know forgiveness. You can know the peace with God. You can have your life changed. Only Jesus was the sinless man who came. And he offers you that deal. He offers you that exchange. He offers you the rescue. And that, folks, is why Jesus is such a big deal. Shall we stand together? Let's sing.
Let's worship this wonderful Savior. Let's bring our thanks and praise. Let's bring our worship. Let's bring our adoration. If you're one of those 15 on the helicopter, you sing it out. You sing your thanks to God. You sing your praise. You thank God for the rescue. Lord, we thank you for what you've done. Mighty God, the sinless Christ who came into the world and on the cross died in our place as our substitute instead of me. We thank you, Lord Jesus, and we worship you. Amen.